Welcome to Football is Family, a podcast dedicated to the fan and fan experience. My name is Jeremy McFarland, and I want to look at the positive behind what makes football so enjoyable to watch and follow. I want to know why you are a fan of your team, of a player, or an era of football. Whether the pros, college, or high school, I want to hear and share your stories and your love for the game. If you want to be part of this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarland or on Facebook at the Footballist Family Facebook page. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Football's Family Podcast. And I have a special guest today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. My name is Bob Letterer, um, a lifetime New York Jets fan from the very beginning, from 1963. Not before then. The Titans really were terrible, and I didn't pay any attention to them. But since 1963, the New York Jets, and because I was a fan during my early teenage years, um, I really developed an affinity for them, a, a love for the franchise. And I was just thrilled when they won the 1969 Super Bowl. Shocked as heck like everybody else, but happy for at least a week after that in, in a state of euphoria. And frankly, if they never win another Super Bowl, I'll be a little disappointed. But if they ever do win another Super Bowl, I'll be excited, but not as much as I was in 1969. Yeah, I was about to ask, would uh a Super Bowl now be anywhere near as great as the Super Bowl in 69? No, only because I was in such a formative age. I was 16 uh, the day the Jets won uh, Super Bowl three, and it was shocking. And as I describe in the book, uh, at one point in the second quarter, the Jets' two defensive ends, uh, Jerry Philbin from the left and Verlin Biggs from the right, uh, were honing in and about to sack the Colts quarterback, Earl Morrill, and he somehow <laughs> avoided both of them. And I got up out of my chair in the living room of our house in Flushing, New York, which was about two miles from the Jets' home stadium, Shea Stadium. Uh, got up and started yelling, get him, get him, get him. And my dad, who was sitting in the back of the room, who was not a football fan, uh, said out loud, Bobby, what's the matter with you? And my uncle Charlie, who was sitting next to my dad in the back of the room, um, basically scolded my dad and said, Paul, leave Bobby alone. He's experiencing something he's going to remember for the rest of his life. And truer words were never spoken. See, Bob, this is, this is what football's family is all about. Uh, memories like this that make not only a memory for you for that moment, but a memory for you for the rest of your life. I mean, that cemented your love for the Jets, didn't it? Well, it did. But, you know, the odd thing, uh, Jeremy, is that one of the reasons why that game became such a uh, a throbbing, you know, memory in my head is that we saw the whole game from start to finish. Now, that may not sound very weird right now, but in those days, I was also a Mets fan. The Mets won the World Series the same year as the Jets won the Super Bowl. But in those days, they played the World Series um, on the weekend and during the weekday, Monday through Friday. And so the Mets won the World Series games 
uh, three, four, and five at Shea Stadium on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I didn't get to see the games because it was on in the afternoon and I was in school. Um, so I didn't see the Mets win the World Series. And I've been a Mets fan since 1963. And the following year, uh, in May of uh, 1970, the Knicks won the NBA championship, the first time they'd ever done that. And that was about 15, 16 months after the Jets won the Super Bowl uh, and about, what, seven, eight months after the Mets won the World Series. And the seventh game against the Lakers where the where the Knicks won the championship was blacked out in New York because that's what the NBA did in those days. They showed the game at midnight, but I wasn't going to stay up till midnight since I had listened to the game on radio, I knew that the Knicks had won, and I was thrilled and excited about that. But again, I saw the Jets win it from start to finish. I didn't see the Mets win it, and I didn't see the Knicks win it, as exciting as those two you know, were for me. And you can imagine the Jets win, the Mets win, your excitement grows as a, as a young teenager. And then the Knicks win, and your excitement is just overboard as another teenager. But when you don't get to see it, it's not the same thrill. Now, it would probably have been a, a clean sweep if the Rangers had won. Got, got to the next to last round, and Bobby Orr and the Big Bad Bruins beat them. And in those days, uh, they, if the Rangers had somehow won, they would have played one of the expansion teams from the NHL. And there's no doubt they would have won, you know, the uh, the Stanley Cup, you know, against that team. But such was not the case. Was that the Amazing Mets? Is that the one I'm thinking of in '69? Yep, the one the, the one and the same. Man, that, I've I've read about that team. That's amazing. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, they so, were. They so, were. They you're, were. you're looking at the '69 Jets. Do you think that that team was just built for that game, or was it just uh, all the stars aligned? You use the word stars in your question. And that team had more stars than just Joe Willie Namath. In fact, the way I positioned the book and the team should be positioned historically is that the other 44 guys on the roster, not named Namath on the uniform, uh, elevated Joe to a position in Super Bowl three where he became a celebrity for the rest of his life. He was already well known. Um, especially in New York, because he was, you know, uh, uh, judiciously by the Jets ownership courting a lot of starlets. And you would see them on his arm uh, in, in the local newspapers the next day, day after day after day. But Namath became a superstar, a celebrity, uh, and somebody who would always have a place in NFL history. For the NFL to play up, which they have year after year after year, because they won Super Bowl three. If Namath had not won Super Bowl three, he would not be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So you got to give a lot of credit to the other players on the Jets. And by the way, they had 11 other players on the Jets team that the week after the Super Bowl played in the American Football League All-Star game. What? So I that's that's saying a lot. That is saying a lot. That uh, looking back at the uh, the film of that, it seems like the defense played a lot bigger part than you would than you would imagine. Uh, they forced four turnovers. Baltimore fans will tell you 
that the Colts beat themselves. Um, you know, in, in a football game, and I have something, I have a quote in the back of my book, which, by the way, is called Beyond Broadway Joe, and everybody out there should get a copy because it really is a great history of football in the 60s, building a franchise. Um, and the book is, is something, frankly, that um, could be written about just about every Super Bowl champion because the contributions of the other guys, the guys who are not the star quarterback or the star running back, um, go um, unidentified for years and years. And especially the, the farther away you get from that game, the less people tend to, to remember who those guys are. But in the back of the book, the quote, one of the quotes from inside the book came from Billy Joe, who was one of the backup jet running backs, who went on to become the second winningest coach um, in black collegiate football history um, behind Grambling's coach. And Billy Joe said to me, to those who think Super Bowl three was lucky, I've seen enough to understand there's no luck in football. Luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And he went on to say to me that, well, the Jets intercepted four passes that day. Um, to say that the Colts just beat themselves and, and threw bad passes is one thing. But there's nothing to say that the Jets' defensive backs um, couldn't have blown the opportunity to drop those interceptions. Um, and there was one fumble recovery as well. So there were five turnovers by the Colts that day. And yes, in a sense, they beat themselves, but opportunity was there for the Jets and they took advantage of it. But when you look at that game in particular, do you think, and, and obviously you've done a lot of research and we'll put a link to that book on my, on the show notes here. Thank you. Uh, do you think that that was a turning point or do you think the Super Bowl the next year was the turning point that really made the AFL later on the AFC legitimate. Um, I, I'll be honest with you and say that then after the Super Bowl four, there was no doubt that the two leagues were comparable. Uh, after the Jets won Super Bowl three, there were still diehards of the NFL, including all the NFL owners who basically looked at the victory as a fluke. Um, and I could see for one game what, where somebody would, would think that. Um, but that game had so much more impact than any other Super Bowl game since. And I say that because after that game came the formation of what we now know as the American Football Conference. Two days before Super Bowl three, Pete Rozelle, the commissioner of the NFL, had talked out loud to the press about the fact that there was a plan that hadn't been finalized yet that would have absorbed the 10 American Football League franchises and brought them into the NFL structure. And by that, I mean, they would have put the Jets in the Giants division. They would have put the Houston Oilers in the Dallas Cowboys division. They would have put the San Francisco 49ers and Oakland Raiders uh, in the same division. So you wouldn't have what you have today. And fans today don't know, uh, I'll bet you 95% of them don't understand where this AFC and NFC come from. And it came because after the game, the AFL owners who were well aware of what Roselle wanted to do, basically uh, told the NFL owners, no, we want to stay together as a 10-team a conference. 
as a, you know, basically maintain our structure. And in order to do that, three teams from the NFL had to move to the American Football Conference. And I'll bet you that the average fan today doesn't really know that that the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Colts and the Cleveland Browns all for three million dollars each moved into the American Football Conference from the NFL. And that's why they are where they are today. So that was another element that the Jets win provided. The other thing, and I'll be real brief about this, is that the NFL had been trying to get Monday Night Football off the ground. After Super Bowl three, it became an easy sell to ABC because they didn't have professional football, NBC and CBS did. In those days, by the way, there was no Fox. Um, and ABC said, hey, we'll, we'll take Monday Night Football. We'll put it on. And of course, it became the big thing for 30 or 40 years. Uh, and there were some other things that happened as a result, including you know, renegotiated contracts with the TV networks for much more money. The players got paid much more money and such. So that game was really, really dramatic. Uh, in its impact. So it was because of a, what was it, 16 to 7 score that we have what we have today. I can't imagine what it would be like to have the Jets and the Giants in the same division. That would be, that would be brutal two times a year. Good gracious. Well, yeah, in a sense, that's, that's what it is. I, I frankly, I'm glad the way it is. Um, I don't want to play the Giants every year. There's a sameness to it. You know, in the early days, even the exhibition games were exciting because it was the only time they played each other. Um, and the players would say that too. But these days, I mean, they're in the same town. Uh, they see each other socially, share the same stadium. Um, so I'm glad they don't play each other twice, you know, um, a year. I, I, mean, I mean, if I can just switch to baseball for a second. Yeah. I don't really like interleague play because – the World Series used to be very special. It was, except for the All-Star game, back in the 60s, it was the only time you saw Sandy Koufax face Mickey Mantle. Um, these days, if if they were both playing, <laughs> well, they'd each be 100 years old, but um, if they played each other, you know, six, seven times every other year, which is what happens now, there would be a sameness to it. And I think Italy play, although it has its pluses when, when the big teams play each other, uh, I don't think overall that it's a great idea. Um, and so, you know, that's how I look at the NFL the same way. Let them, let them play separately. Uh, I, you know, I live in Chicago now, so I'm glad when the Jets play the Bears every once in a while, because if they play in Chicago, maybe I'll get a ticket and be able to go see a game. It's the only way that I'll ever really get to see the Jets play. How hard is it to get tickets up in Chicago? It's like, it's really hard because season ticket holders uh, pass them on generation to generation in their wills. So if the, if the Bears suck, uh, you can get tickets from a Bears fan. And if it's late enough in the season, they'll say, to heck with it. You can have my tickets. You don't even have to pay me for them. I don't want to go. <laughs> We've had some issues in the last three years about Titans tickets becoming a lot harder to come by. Uh, about four years ago, I was able to, a guy couldn't go. So he said, you want to go to the Texans game? Yes, here's the ticket, go. Now it's sell your left arm. And it's just, it's amazing what winning would do. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a uh, game changing 
type of situation. I mean, and the Jets fans are so, so avid and so much want a winning team and want, and want to go to the Super Bowl desperately that they are unwilling to do the one thing that might actually make that possible. And that is to stop buying tickets and boycott the team because until they do that, management is not going to take them seriously. And they'll just continue what they've been doing all along. Not, not that I don't like, you know, the general manager and the coach they have in there now, but you know, they're in year two of coaching and and year two and a half of general managing. And I think you have to give them probably four or five years to prove themselves. That's one of the things I learned in, in researching uh, my Jets book is that you have to have some patience. You have to give the coach and the general manager time to get the right players and to coach them up and turn them from collegiate, you know, stars where they're playing against guys like you and me. And all of a sudden they're professionals and they're playing against guys who are bigger than them, at least as fast as they are, but way more experienced. Uh, and and really know you and how to how to work against you. Here's here's a great example. Don Maynard, who who died a few weeks ago, uh, told me for the book that he much preferred as a wide receiver to have to go one on one against a defensive back who was a veteran, because he knew exactly what those veterans' tendencies were and how he could manipulate it and get by them and and make them do something that they maybe weren't planning to do, or he himself do something that they couldn't possibly prepare for. He said with a with a really young, athletic, let's say, rookie cornerback, he didn't know what to expect. So uh, it was much more of a, a question to him going into the game. You, um, and I'm sure this is in your book. Again, uh, what is the name of the book? Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. Now, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, and there's a good chance that I am. My wife will tell you that there's a really good chance that I am. Um, Weeb Banks was the coach at that moment, right? You got it. And the okay. general manager. And, and the, the general, general manager. manager. Okay, I was going to ask you that. Uh, the Jets were basically reborn in 63. They were once the New York Titans uh, due to money and things like that. And I cannot, Sonny Warblin, is that who bought them? He was the head of the syndicate that bought them. Okay, okay. Um, from 63 to 69, what were the Jets like? Winning, um, losing, their culture was pretty rough. Um, it, it, it was a struggle. Um, I just said a few minutes ago, patience. Okay, that's what the I was going to ask. And, I, and, I, and I'll, give you, I'll give you a perfect example. Let's look at their record. 1963, Weeb's first year as the coach, and he had no players at all. The Titans left him no talent whatsoever. The Jets had not had a collegiate draft because the Titans had done the drafting in October of 62. They had no money, so they didn't sign anybody. And by the way, there was some real pearls that they could have signed that year, but they just didn't go out and spend the money. So Weeb had no fresh collegiate talent coming into uh, his ranks. The best talent that he got that wasn't already there came as the Baltimore Colts, where we had been before, started cutting young players because Don Shula, who succeeded Weeb in Baltimore, told the players as he was cutting them, go talk to Weeb up in New York. I think he might have a job for you. And four or five of the players that the Colts cut 
went to the Jets in 63, in, in the fall, in the late summer of 63, and stayed with the team and actually became starters and were on the field um, as starters in Super Bowl three and faced Shula himself. So that was where he got most of his talent. So they were five, eight, and one in 1963. In 63, uh, 64, they had a pretty good draft. They added a number of pretty good players. Their record at the end of the year, five, eight, and one. In 1965, they added Joe Namath uh, and, and three other guys who went on to become AFL All Pros. And this may sound like a broken record, but at the end of the year, their record was five, eight, and one. Doesn't sound like a lot of progress, except that the league, the American Football League, was getting better too. And so the Jets were not getting incrementally that better as far as the talent immediately, you know, becoming world beaters. Like Namath, Namath did not beat the world, you know, his rookie year. He showed exceptional promise and he was the AFL rookie of the year. And he showed talent like, you know, nobody could imagine. Um, But he did not break all the records that year. So now we're up to 1966. And in 1966, they finished. Uh, seven and seven. Okay, some progress. And in 67, uh, they finished eight, uh, eight, five, and one. They missed the playoffs because they tied the Houston Oilers uh, in a game in shape that they should have won easily. And finally, in the 68 season, they finished 11 and three. So it took five plus years. Um, Weeb in Baltimore from 53. To 58, when the Colts won the NFL championship for the first year, if you look it up, it was a very, very similar progression. It was slow for a fan. It it might have seemed tedious, but the thing I I really got out of um, uh, the research I did for the book and talking to the players is that being coached up by by the assistant coaches on being a professional and what you had to do to really, you know, make it against these other veteran players that you were up against, you know, was a challenge. Uh, And you had to give it time and you had to let these guys get the experience on the field. And as they did, they got better. And that's what I see with the Jet team today. If you look in this past year, um, especially, their cornerbacks were basically a bunch of guys named Tom, Joe, and Harry who'd been drafted in the sixth and seventh round. And some were free agents. And somehow the Jets coaching staff um, made them into pretty good professional prospects. One of the guys, the left corner, is is pretty damn good. The other guys are showing a tremendous promise. They may not be starters, but they're going to be hanging around a lot as you know, true professional players who, if you put them in the right position, can make important plays for you. And that's from being coached up. I'll just uh, oh, being coached up. Y'all beat uh, y'all beat the Titans about week three or four. Still hurts right now. Thank with you. our ba- with our backup quarterback. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. That that just makes it even better when you brought that up. I appreciate that. Uh, sorry, you I, I'm 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 taking a second and I'm sorry. You're, you're basking. I can see you're basking in but, it. But but between beating them and uh, and who else did we? 
we beat, we should be in the Super Bowl against the Rams. Well, see, this is the thing. When you mentioned the five-year process, you wouldn't have that today. No, it's it's too – well, you, you also have a lot of free agency that you didn't have then. But even, even I, on that point, I can make the argument, and I would, if I was running a professional football team and I am in no way – in a position to do that, even if somebody came to me and said, take over the Jets, let's see what you could do. And I would say, if I did, I would be a guy way, way, way behind the scenes, just wanting to know what Joe Douglas and Robert Sala have in mind. And I say that because in, even in today's context, yeah, that that um, talking, um, bringing in even a star player and integrating them into your lineup is not as simple as it sounds. You know, it's a lot easier in baseball. You need a star shortstop, you go get a star shortstop. You need a star wide receiver. You can get a guy who's a star wide receiver, but do you have the quarterback? Do you have the blocking not only from the offensive line, but from the running backs to deal with blitzes? Um, And are your other receivers good enough that they're going to keep attention away from that star receiver that you just brought in. So it's not as simple a process as people may think it is. We can see that happening now with, with Zach Taylor. Uh, I remember last year with him and he's the Bengals coach. I remember last year they're saying, well, we need to fire him. We need to fire him. Well, guess what? He stuck around and, and there is a good chance that they win the Super Bowl this year. There is a real I'm certainly hoping they do. I mean, I, I love Burrow. And Burrow's being compared to to Joe Willie and to Montana. And I don't know if that comparison is is spot I, on or not, but I, I can't but the handle guy, the guy's got the guy's got charisma and he boy, yeah. he's got he's got a gun. I can't handle the comparison. Joe Burrow is not Joe Namath or Joe or or, or Joe Montana. He's Joe Burrow. They're they're just three guys that have their place in history. I just well, I agree with you because I don't see any comparison between Namath and Montana. Completely different, completely different types of quarterbacks. Now, I've, I read, and I can't, I don't remember the name of the book. It was uh, Rising Tide, I believe, is the name of the book. Uh, and I just got through reading, talking about Namath coming down from Pennsylvania, from yep. Beaver Beaver Falls, I believe. Yep. To Tuscaloosa, where. Yeah, I've said it on my on this show before. Two of my kids were born in Tuscaloosa, so I've got a little tie there. I asked people what they thought about Joe Namath while they were there, while I was living in that area, and uh, people just they couldn't stop gushing about how good of a quarterback he was. But was was his signing for the Jets more about prestige, or was it more about him as a player? There were people back in the sixties, and I remember this who in some quarters were describing Namath as the greatest collegiate quarterback prospect to ever come into the pro ranks. Um, Before he injured his knee, his junior year in Alabama, he not only was a quarterback with a great arm, although the, the video, the film I've seen of him playing for Alabama, you didn't see the vintage Joe Namath that you saw as a pro with the classic very quick drop back and getting rid of the ball, you know, 60 or 70 yards on a line, um, you know, in, in, a, in fractions of a second. In fact, I'll tell you, here's a great little anecdote as well from the book. 
Dave Pirelli was the longtime veteran quarterback at the Boston Patriots. Uh, when the 68 training camp started, the Jets traded for Babe Pirelli so they'd have a backup for Joe Namath. And Pirelli had thought he'd been drafted in 1953 or 1954. So he'd been around the game for 50, 15 years or so. And he came into camp and and Pirelli was talking to Coach Eubank and and Weeb said, you know, that 2.8 seconds that you've got to get rid of the ball in Boston? And Pirelli said, yeah. He said, well, here you got 4.2 seconds. And that's because the Jets blocking schemes between the offensive line and the running backs was so strong that you had extra time. And they did that to protect Namath because Joe was, he was a, uh, uh, like a matter or with bulls coming right at him. He had nowhere to go. He couldn't move because of his knee injuries, but yes, he was extremely highly regarded and he was considered um, in the 64 draft uh, to be the gem of the draft and critical and, and Sonny Werblin, the Jets owner had been told by Weeb and a year before when Namath was a junior and before he got hurt, that this was the guy we want to get. We'll have to wait another year, but that's the guy we want to get. Now, just, just looking back at that, that was a, a turning point, not only in, in the NFL history, but also for the history of, contracts i believe it was a four hundred thousand dollar contract and what was it a cadillac four hundred and twenty seven thousand dollars and i think a mint green cadillac oh you gotta have the cadillac uh, you know what it might not have been a cadillac it might have been i don't know i think it probably was a cadillac but it was mint green uh that that really set the bar high and i believe that made legitimacy but wasn't the Jets had that type of money because of the TV deals. That was part of it. The other part of it was that Werblin and the guys who were backing him had a lot of money, not as much, ironically, as Lamar Hunt had in Kansas City or Bud Adams had in uh, in Houston or Baron Hilton had in, in, in uh, Los Angeles slash San Diego. Uh, and Buffalo's owner, uh, uh, it had a tremendous amount of money too. He'd made a ton of money in real estate, um, but they had a lot of money and they had negotiated a contract with NBC and NBC had told them, we'll give you this money. Uh, and it worked out to like $900,000 a year for each team, but you got to spend it to upgrade the talent on your teams. Cause most of the players in the AFL at that point, had basically been guys who had played in the Canadian Football League or been cut by NFL teams or hadn't made NFL teams in the 50s and were trying to rejuvenate their career. Like Lenny Dawson was one great example, and George Blanda, you know, was another. Guys who went on to become, you know, really good professional football players, but they had not been given the time to mature in, in NFL. And that tells you, don't don't just cast people off if you don't have a spot. You never know where they'll land. Well, yeah. And let me make one more point about the money. Money is yeah. really important here because this is 1964-65. In 66, the year after Namath signed for the money that everybody thought was outrageous, $427,000 for three years, um, the AFL continued to spend like that. And the NFL saw it and said, we've got to do the same. And that's what led to the merger because the American Football League owners started spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on 
offensive linemen and defensive linemen and linebackers, guys who were not going to become stars that NBC was necessarily going to highlight every week the way they would a quarterback or a great running back. And the NFL looked at it and there's their salary structure and said, we have to do something. We can't keep playing, paying these rookies that kind of money because Johnny Unitas wasn't making a hundred thousand dollars a year. And famously Frank Ryan of, of the Cleveland Browns who had just won uh, the NFL championship in 64 when Namath signed with the Jets said if he's worth four hundred twenty seven thousand dollars I'm you know I'm probably worth a million <laughs> that's that's when you get into a bidding war that no one can keep up with exactly and the NFL was prepared to do it the NFL was not Bob I want to I want to thank you for coming on today uh, I got a couple of questions for you before we finish if, if you're ready these are hard questions Shoot. all right Shoot. If you had a Mount Rushmore of New York Jets, ah, who would it be? Well, you certainly have to put Namath up there. Now, make sure if you do it, you do a whole body uh, sculpture with his uh, with with the fur coat. No, no, just his mug. Just, just his mug. mug. He's got he's got to have the hair. He's got to have the hair. <laughs> um. They've had some great running backs. And, you know, I have to be honest with you, I'm 69 years old, and the names don't come out of me quite as quickly anymore as they once did. But you have to put Maynard up there as well because yeah. he still holds most of the Jets receiving records. Um, I think you, you have to put Joe Klecko up there, probably the best defensive lineman they've ever had. And they've had some really good linebackers. Um, so I don't know who the fourth guy would be. Um but I would, to this point, um, you know, consider Weeb because he's the architect. He's the guy that not only, you know, coached the team, but he also, as they say, as Bill Parcells, Bill Parcells would say 30 or 40 years later, he bought the groceries. He selected the players that he wanted to bring in. Uh, and he did a tremendous job uh, up until the time the Jets won the Super Bowl. Afterwards, his choices weren't very good, um, but he did a great job of bringing in the right guys and coaching them. And he clearly outcoached Don Shula in Super Bowl three. And the book points out a number of different ways that he did. But uh, and I'll tell you the one anecdote that really stands out. Uh, I don't know if today when you get film of the other team for the next game, maybe you know this, I don't. Do you just get the video or do you also get the audio? I don't know. I'm assuming you just get the video, but you might also get the audio. But in those days, you just got the video. You got film. So you couldn't really tell very much. But when we left the Baltimore Colts in 1963, when he was told to go away, uh, Don Shula took over as head coach, and he decided to keep Weeb's systems, offensive system and defensive system. So Weeb goes up to New York and he installs his offensive system and his defensive system. You now have two teams in pro football using the same systems, but they never play each other until January 12th, 1969. And early in the first quarter, Weeb is watching the Colts with the ball and he hears the signals that they're calling and they're using the same signals that the Jets use. 
And he calls over the offensive coordinator, Cleve Rush, and he says, Cleve, watch this. And he, he calls, he sees Unitas call out, not Unitas, but Earl Marl call out a play. And Weep says, this is going to be a play. I'm just making this up right here, but this is going to be a run to the left. Sure enough, it's a run to the left. And on the next place is, okay, this is going to be a pass to the to the flanker, you know, in the right and the right side. And sure enough, that's what it is. We called over Joe and called over John Schmidt, the Jets center. And he said, they're using our exact same system. Exactly the same. Watch. And Joe sees a player too and says, okay, coach, what are we going to do? And Weeb says, stop calling plays in the huddle. I want you to go to the line of scrimmage. They called it check with me. They would go in the huddle and Joe would say check with me, which meant we're going to the line of scrimmage. I'll call the play from there. And Joe would bark out signals. And the Colts kind of indicated too that they knew what was happening because Joe would call out signals and get the linebacker and the safety on the Colts to move in one direction by calling out a certain play. But he would immediately change the play like in a fraction of a second in the opposite direction. And when you watch Super Bowl three, once the Jets start going to the line of scrimmage and calling plays from there, the Colts are always a step or two behind the Jets receiver, the running backs, you know, what, whatever the, wherever the play was going. And that's because no matter how great a professional athlete you are, if they get you going in the wrong direction and the play goes in the opposite direction, you're going to be a step or two behind. And it gives the offensive team you know, a, a great, you know, opportunity to, to take advantage of that. And some of the Jets defensive players did the same thing. They also took advantage of it, although they weren't as clear uh, in, in their minds what was going on as the offensive players became. But John Schmidt told me this story. I tried to get Namath to confirm it, and he wouldn't talk to me. But Schmidt swore up and down that that was one of the keys to the Jets' victory, is that they always had the Colts moving in the wrong direction, and the Colts couldn't figure out why that was happening. <laughs> that, oh, my. Uh, one one last question. Uh, are you a collector? Some degree. Um, not of Jets stuff, necessarily. I have a lot of, I think, valuable baseball autographs and such, which I got as a kid. I, I grew up a Met fan, but I have a lot of Yankee. So if I have autographed pictures from Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Whitey Ford and Yogi and, and all that, which, you know, um, I have no interest in selling. I'll pass it on to my boys. I don't know if they're that interested in it either. Maybe they will sell it, but, but I consider it, consider it really part of uh, some of my treasured stuff. That's amazing. I was going to ask you, uh, and it is, by the way, we don't get this very often down here in Tennessee, but it's snowing right now. I just thought I'd let everybody know it's snowing. That storm it's- head- I hope that storm is not heading up. Uh, <laughs> up the- We've had enough snow this week. We just dug out had- from seven inches yesterday. We had ice uh, seven inches. Good gracious. Well, but, but when you get an inch or two, probably everything stops. Yeah, we don't know how to drive in the snow. No, nobody in the South does. No, no so you anybody, don't that's, anybody that's listening right now, you go into low gear. <laughs> and you take it nice and slow because most people aren't going to be on the road. Uh, and hopefully the town you live in, there'll be at least some, some sand or something they can throw, you know, on the, on the ground, uh, even if it isn't actually, uh, you know, uh, ice and snow clearing material, but they do obviously a, a good job here 
you know, in in the industrialized north of America of of getting uh, the roads, you know, semi passable. But again, you just have to go slow. We uh, we don't have that here. We might have one guy with the with some table salt outside throwing it on the ground and said, "Here you go, folks." Can't you buy rock salt um, in in like Home Depot or or, I, or something like that? I'm sure we can. Uh, but you know, though, as much as we get snow down here, it's really not worth it. It may happen once or twice a year. Yeah, but when you get ice, you know, you don't oh. want to slip on it. I fell down the other day, but my overcoat was so puffy that I was lucky I landed on my rear end and I didn't really get hurt. But, but, uh, you Safe know, this place to land. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. What what is your book again? Let's and I will put this on the uh, show notes. It is called Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. And my name is Bob Lederer. It's spelled L E D, like David E R E R. It's like Roger Federer, the the tennis player, only with an L instead of an F. Uh, you can get it on uh, a good deal on it on Amazon. And I encourage you to read the reviews on Amazon because it's up over a hundred now. If you're a Jets fan, that's one thing. Of course, you I think you should get the book. But if you're a fan who's interested in the history of pro football, it gives you a great look into what was going on in the 1960s uh, and the development of the American Football League and why there was a merger, because the NFL fought a merger for about six years, and they finally relented. Thank you so much for coming on Football's Family Podcast. It is my pleasure. I hope we can uh, do it again. Uh, And uh, best of luck to everybody out there and stay warm. This podcast is sponsored by Play Classic Sports Simulation Board Games, spelled with two A's, P-L-A-A-Y. Realistic board game recreations of professional football, hockey, baseball, NASCAR, golf, and more. They cover nine sports in all, with a 10th, basketball, coming in 2022. You can relive great sessions of the past, create what-if matchups from different eras, and much more. It's fun. So if you're into sports history, you should check them out. That's play with two A's, P-L-A-A-Y, classic.com. And don't forget to use the code SHN at checkout and get 10% off your first order. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday, and Thursday, and Monday, and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA Golf, Cricket, Esports, and of course, NFL football. And just to get the 2021 NFL season started right, Thrive Fantasy is holding its $100,000 guaranteed contest with a $20,000 first prize. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive, that's T-H-R-I-V-E, or enter promo code S-H-N when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. 
Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com ROW number one for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes.